Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 156, Dr. J.R. Daniel Kirk on A Man Attested by God, Part 2. Dr. J.R. Daniel Kirk earned his Ph.D. in religion from Duke University. He currently serves as pastoral director at Newbingen House of Studies, and he blogs at storiedtheology.com. Dr. Kirk has published more than a dozen articles on biblical exegesis and is the author of the books Unlocking Romans, Resurrection and the Justification of God, and Jesus Have I Loved But Paul, a narrative approach to the problem of Pauline Christianity. But he's here with us today to talk about his latest book, A Man Attested by God, The Human Jesus of the Synoptics. Dr. Kirk, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you. It's great having this conversation with you. Dr. Kirk, at one point in your book, you say that, quote, Jesus and God are separate characters in Mark, end quote. And you often contrast the Christology of the synoptics with that of the gospel according to John. Do you think that the fourth gospel presents Jesus and God as a single character? No, I actually think that the Gospel of John presents them as separate characters as well. God in John is still the Father, one one notwithstanding. You know, I would say that the Gospel of John is also subordinationist in the way that Jesus is very much, as the Son, derivative uh, from the Father. The big difference is that it seems to me that there are recurring indications that Jesus has preexistence in the Gospel of John. And that Jesus is, in his signs, seeming to to demonstrate a quality about his character that includes that preexistent notion. That's my overall impression of the Gospel of John. And I was in a conversation with some biblical Unitarians last weekend, and I felt the deficiency in my not having spent the time in the Gospel of John that I've spent in the other three Gospels uh, over the last seven years. But, you know, those ideas that Jesus having glory with the Father before the world was, I think that those are signals of at least a pre-existence Christology, even though there is still a significant differentiation between the Father and the Son in John as well. Maybe in some sense a divine Christology, but not in the sense where it identifies Jesus as God, like we talked about last time? Yeah, maybe so. One of the reasons that I think... I have as little patience with some of the early high Christology stuff as I do is that it seems as though you have to have a PhD in philosophy in order to correctly articulate the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Your two choices are either get a PhD in philosophy or relegate yourself to simply repeating the creed. Um, (laughs) Oh, the PhD in philosophy doesn't help. I've got one. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't. Dang it. (laughs) Um, The idea that... It helps you sort out the theories. That's it. Yeah. Well, the idea that Jesus and God are the same divine substance, I don't know what John would do with that. The Son derivatively shares in the glory of the Father. Um, the Father gives that to the Son. That's great. I just Beyond that, you know, I, I don't know what the writer of John might or might not say about that relationship between Jesus and God beyond, uh, beyond what he has. So, yeah, a, a divine figure 
of some sort. But then again, in John is where Jesus says, you know, hey, doesn't the scripture say you are gods uh, when he's just talking to people? So mm-hmm. that that's an interesting wrench thrown into the, the whole equation as well. So, you know, I think John is maybe even trickier than sometimes we're prone to see. Yeah, he's tricky, that's for sure. <laughs> Dr. Kirk, many Latter-day readers of the Synoptic Gospels, to go back to more familiar ground, thank you. <laughs> will notice that Jesus is there called the Son of God and conclude that this means the same thing as God the Son. In other words, this title means that he has a divine nature and not only a human nature. In your view, are they correct in making that inference? No, I think that's a very simple no. The idea that Jesus is Son of God, that is a, a title and a statement that Jesus shares with a lot of other people in the, the Jewish tradition. In the Exodus tradition, Israel as a whole is the Son of God. Right? God's command to Pharaoh is, let my people go, and you know I'm going to take my son from you, and it's going to cost you your firstborn son. That's sort of the, the tit-for-tat that's going on there. The Davidic kings are also referred to as sons of God. In Psalm 2, which is widely regarded as an enthronement psalm, tell the decree of the Lord, he has said to me, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. The Israelite king was seen as the begotten son of God upon his enthronement. There is a messianic psalm, Psalm 89, that I think is tremendously important for understanding Jesus in the Gospels. It's messianic in every sense of the word. It celebrates the Davidic kingship, but it also laments the fact that the kingship is in ruins and is looking forward to its restoration. And as it's describing this idealized messianic Davidic king, in the voice of God, the psalm says, He will cry out to me, my God, my father, and the rock of my salvation. So you know, the notion that the Israelite king and the, the Messiah is son of God is one that runs throughout the biblical precedent. I argue that where we see Jesus being called Son of God in Mark at the baptism, transfiguration, and crucifixion all uphold this idea that Jesus is the anointed Messiah. I also mostly just plunder the work of Leroy Husingay to argue that this is also a signal that Jesus as the beloved son is going to be offered up as a sacrifice, even as Abraham's beloved son Isaac was so offered up. The other sorts of things I'll say is like when you get into Matthew's gospel, The idea that God is the father of people who followed Jesus is a critical component to what's going on. The other sons of God in the New Testament, sons and daughters of God, are Christian believers. Uh, So this is something that Jesus has, it's a title that he has uh, as a human being that other human beings share in as they come to participate in in the family of God. This is actually one of those places where I see a title that Jesus has given is not so much to say him and not us, but to say him, therefore us. Because he, as this idealized human, bears this title, he has the authority to open up the divine household to other humans as well. So, yeah, Son of God is very much about Jesus having this role in God's family as the one who bears the divine image and and rules the world on God's behalf. And then that is also a title that he bears as he's opening up the family of God for other people to be manifestations of the Heavenly Father here on earth. And I'm thinking especially there of Matthew's gospel. So when you make the point that there are other people in Scripture called Son of God, your point is not that Jesus is of the same 
status or plays the same role in God's plan that these other people, but just merely that that's not necessarily a divine title, like a title that can only be given to God? Yeah, well, I think as you said it, it's true. Although I think there are pointers, right? That the fact that messianic figures and Davidic kings are called sons of God, that's important for understanding what the New Testament writers say when they call Jesus a son of God. They're saying, yeah, here is the Messiah. Now, these stories are going to show us that Jesus is Messiah in a surprising way, and so we're going to have to read the stories to learn what it means. But the Old Testament passages do give us a starting point. In Matthew's Gospel, one of the earliest indications that Jesus is Son of God is in a quotation from Hosea, where God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's an indication that, for Matthew, Jesus is going to be an embodiment of the story of Israel, because Israel is God's son. So, uh, I do think that the Old Testament and early Jewish uses of Son of God language give us pointers to understand the the Christology of the Gospels, but they don't exhaust them, and the, the substance of those titles for Jesus is one that is going to have to play out on the pages of the story. He's the Son of God in a unique sense. I mean, the word Christ just means anointed one, right? Right. And then there have been other anointed ones, but then he's but the Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eschatological agent who is bringing to pass the fulfillment of God's promises of final judgment and return from exile and gathering of the people. So yeah, Jesus is the man here at this climactic point in the story in a way that David wasn't as king of Israel So both of these terms, Messiah and Son of God, become unique Christological or Messianic titles in a way. They have a a broader use and then a more specific use. Right. Or sort of a highest use in a sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Dr. Kirk, in a number of places in the Synoptic Gospels, notably at the end of Matthew, people worship Jesus. Doesn't this show in the writer's view that Jesus is God himself? I mean, after all, it's in the Ten Commandments, only worship Yahweh. Right. You know, it's an interesting thing as you read through Scripture. There's these onlys and nevers and things, and generally that's couched toward the bad guys. No other gods before me. Uh, Only worship Yahweh. Okay, that's right. And they're a monolatrous sort of people. Uh, But then a peculiar thing happens as you, you look at their stories, and that is that other people who are recognized as God's agents are able, in fact, to receive worship. I pointed out already that thing from the Exegogue about Moses um, being enthroned and the, the stars of heaven bowing down before him. There are a couple other places in the Old Testament itself where people share in the divine worship. One place, again, I'm drawing here on the observations of James McGrath. In First Chronicles, when the temple is dedicated— If you remember what happens in Chronicles, there's sort of this back and forth about Solomon building it, but David authorizing it and and all of this. 
In this transition point, um, David calls on the people and says, you know, worship God. What the narrator tells us is the people bowed down and worshiped God and the king. A little bit later on, it says that Solomon sat on the throne of God in the place of David, his father. It's an interesting passage in that it brings together two things that Richard Balcom claims God never shares, i.e. God's worship and God's throne. And in this passage, actually, the king shares both of those things. The point being that the king is honored and worshiped because God has enthroned this particular king and seated this king with God on God's own throne. So when people bow down and direct their worship to God on God's throne, the king is seated there with him, sort of metaphorically. And so I think that there is actually a place in Israel's text and Israel's worship where they anticipate a time when an idealized king, a Messiah figure, if you will, would be a co-recipient in worship alongside Yahweh because he is the representative or manifestation of Yahweh's rule on the earth. There's also, of course, Psalm 45, which is a psalm that's directed to the king, which means that at some point in the life of Israel, Israelites were singing to the king this song, which extols his beauty, essentially calls him a god, and asks who's like you among the gods, and celebrates him because Israel's god has enthroned him and made him beautiful and powerful and and all of these things. So, I disagree with that aspect of Balcom's thesis and the thesis of Larry Hurtado that worship is a definitive marker of divinity per se. There are expectations that a person could share in that worship if the right person came on the scene. That's maybe part of what we see going on in earliest Christianity. Now, with Matthew himself... The bowing down before Jesus is interesting. The first time that it happens is when the Magi come from the east and they're looking for baby Jesus. Their question is, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because we've seen his star and we've come to worship him. The reason that they give for him being worthy of worship is that he is king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. That's the messianic title that validates Jesus receiving worship, not mm-hmm. where is God incarnate, but king of the Jews. And similarly, at the end of Matthew, uh, I was actually just reading today in Richard Hayes' book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, and he argues that this resurrection appearance in Matthew 28 is uh, a fulfillment of Daniel 7, where Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, even as the Son of Man is given authority over the nations, and Jesus sends his disciples out into the nations and, and all of this. So why do the disciples bow down and worship him? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. A change has happened to Jesus. He is given a broader scope of authority that he has before. His resurrection is, I would argue, his enthronement, drawing on the Daniel 7 imagery from earlier in the gospel. The Son of Man goes in the clouds and and is enthroned at God's right hand. Jesus says this is going to happen from now on. He says at his trial. So this is Jesus' vindication as Son of Man, where God has given him authority and the people bow and worship him. I think that is the appropriate posture for the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, who has now been enthroned as Lord over the whole cosmos. 
There's also the place in the middle in chapter 14 where Jesus walks on water and the disciples get all freaked out and they bow down before him. When they do bow down before him, they say, truly, you are son of God. Uh, And we've already talked about son of God as messianic language. So uh, I think that in those beginning, middle, and ending markers of Jesus' identity as it's tied to the question of worship, what we're seeing is that Jesus is being worshiped, and maybe that might even be too strong a word, but he's being bowed before as the king that God has empowered, anointed, enthroned, created to rule the world alongside of God. places in the synoptics and even elsewhere in the New Testament where the writer takes a passage that was originally about the one God, Yahweh, and then applies that passage to Jesus, doesn't that have to be a way of hinting that Jesus just is the one God? From Qumran 4Q167, Fragment 2, a quotation from Hosea 5.14, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a lion cub to the house of Judah. Its interpretation concerns the last priest who will stretch out his hand to strike Ephraim. In the Qumran texts, there is right there something that God does. I, in that case, is Yahweh in Hosea 5.14. I will be like a lion. But the interpretation is about the priest who will stretch out his hand to strike Ephraim. Similarly, in the Qumran Pesher at Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 2.4, the just will live by faith. The interpretation of that is not about faithfulness to God or God's faithfulness to the people, but it's interpreted as people will live because of their faithfulness to the teacher of righteousness. So again, there is a replacement of a divine referent with a person, the, the hero, the leader of the community. There's also a a place where, talking about Melchizedek, a similar thing happens, where the divine referent is replaced by Melchizedek. So I think there is precedent in early Judaism for the idea that God's representative can be the one in whom texts that originally spoke about God are fulfilled. So, no, uh, I don't think that Jesus replacing God as a referent in these things means that Jesus is God. What it means is that Jesus is the one through whom God is bringing this promise to fruition and fulfillment. Like I said, I've been reading Richard Hayes' book, which has a section on each of the Gospels arguing why they have a divine Christology. Mm -hmm. And it's very persuasive stuff, but the level of persuasiveness of those arguments is directly tied to what a first century Jewish person could actually do with an Old Testament text without it sort of infringing on the divine identity. And, you know, as I said last week, I think that my Judaism chapter is the most important part of the book. 
And part of the reason why is because it reframes for us what the possibilities were for Jewish people in the Old Testament period and in Second Temple Judaism. It's all well and good to say there's no other possibility. You know, if you apply this text about God to Jesus, what you're saying is Jesus is Yahweh. It's a very compelling argument until you get into early Judaism and say, oh, actually Jewish people did that about other people all the time. And we don't think that the Qumran community is claiming a Binitarian theology in which the teacher of righteousness is included in the divine identity. Nobody's making that argument. And I think that that shows that it's actually our theological presuppositions that are driving a, a lot of these conclusions much more than good historical critical work. I mean, the thought isn't that difficult. If the passage was clearly originally about God, and now it's being said that its fulfillment or maybe a new fulfillment of it has to do with this human. Yeah, but this is the human through whom God is doing it. So, in a way, it's still about God, but it's, it's also about God's human agent, right? Right, exactly. So, it's not like a violent switch of subject. The subject is still divine action. It's just now it's sort of indirect. Right. I think that's correct. There's one quote that I deploy, I think, a, a couple of times, and I find it to be a really helpful sort of summary of the attitudes that you know, I'm trying to hold together here. It's from the Midrash Tanhumah. It's a later Jewish Midrash. But this is what it says. It says, Our rabbis teach us that no king of flesh and blood rides on God's steed or puts on his robes or uses his crown or sits on his throne. All right, so you know, the idea being that you know, a human king can't usurp these unique divine prerogatives of sitting on God's throne or riding on God's horse or wearing God's crown, right? But the Holy One, blessed be he, apportions all of these to those who fear him and give them to them. So, yes, these are gods and no one can take them and claim them. And because they're gods, God can give them to whoever God wants. In a lot of this early high Christology talk, that first part is absolutized. Only God can sit on God's throne, exercise sovereignty over the world. And because it's absolutized, we miss this other thread, which is God actually giving those things to people. I think that is the real tension that we have to learn how to hold together, is God's own ability in early Judaism to give these things away and to share these things that otherwise are God's alone and nobody can claim them for himself or, or for herself. This isn't really a very difficult idea either. I mean... If there's any such thing as prophecy, then God lets people speak even first person for him, and God heals through people in the Old and New Testaments. And somebody like you or I might authorize a person to forgive a debt or reconcile someone with us who's estranged. Mm -hmm. Say, um, somebody owes me a million bucks, you know, you're working for me, and I say, you know, if they're really sorry, then you can let them off. If you let them off... I've let him off because I yeah. authorized you to do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm I don't doing think it's it that hard you. either. Um, but, you know, I think it's the context where we have to establish that it is possible for God to share these things in these ways. And it is possible for an early Jewish person to talk about another human being in these ways. 
And for some reason, I think most of us just haven't done that work. So the early high Christology arguments end up sounding a lot more compelling than I think they actually are. Dr. Kirk, I imagine that many will object that what you're suggesting is a mere man reading of the Christology of the Synoptics, but your reading is that Jesus in these books is presented as God's unique human Messiah. In your view, do some underestimate how much is involved in being the Messiah? Yes. I think that if there is a theological pulse that gives energy to this book, it's the idea that we generally, I think both in serious academic theology and maybe more especially in popular conceptions, we have a very, very thin understanding of what it means for Jesus to be human. And it's as a man, of course, that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me pick on Anselm for a little bit, and this might be an oversimplification, and if you've got hate mail about how I'm depicting Anselm, send it to Dale, not me. Um, (laughs) But why the God-man? Yeah. Well, there is this infinite debt of honor that has to be paid from this infinitely honorable God who's been dishonored by these people who have not rendered to God what God has due. So this Messiah has to be God in order to have the infinite honor to pay back the infinite debt. Mm -hmm. Why man? Because we suck. Because we are the ones who owe God this huge debt. So this debt could only be paid by a man, but only a divinity could have the wherewithal to pay it back for us. So, you know, what makes Jesus human is what's wrong with us. You know, the brokenness, the sin, the debt. Whereas what I want to say is, no, 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 this whole human Messiah thing, its roots are actually deeper than the fall. Its roots are creation where God creates people for the purpose of ruling the world, where God creates people as God's image-bearing likeness. People will say that Genesis 1 is this priestly account of God creating the whole world as a a tabernacle, and right in the middle of it, rather than there being an idol that represents the image of the God, is humans who are the icons. All right, the same thing that you're not supposed to bow down to or make or whatever is what God makes. God makes an image and likeness of God's self and its humanity. And so the purpose of creation is to have an image-bearing human creature who rules the world on God's behalf. And so if that's what creation is, if there can never be a human being who can rule the world on God's behalf, and this is how I understand the calling of the the human Messiah, if there can never be a human who does that, then within this biblical story, humanity's or Satan's or whoever's ability to mess up the world that God made is greater than God's ability to bring God's own purposes to conclusion. I think that having a human Messiah is an absolute narratological necessity for the biblical story in a way that having a divine Messiah is not. This is the story about God's relentless pursuit of humanity and God trying to separate out people to be faithful representatives of the whole, whether that's Israel first or the Davidic kings or the priesthood, and the Messiah is the fulfillment of that 
idea that here we can have a faithful human representing the others, that this can be the beginning of new creation so that the whole created order can be remade and restored. All of the stuff about Jesus being son of man, son of God, about Jesus as a healer, uh, somebody who has authority over broken bodies, who has authority over malevolent spirits, somebody who has authority over nature. I think all of these are, in essence, necessary manifestations of a human Messiah who is fully stepping into the rule over the earth, given authority upon the earth, as we talked about last week in Mark 2 that God wants for humanity to have. So, yeah, I think we need to enrich our understanding of Messiah with this idealized human notion and recognize how critical that is for not only holding together these gospel stories, but for understanding how these gospel stories really are depicting themselves as the culmination of the whole Bible story. Yeah, this is a deep theme, and this crops up throughout the book. It's not just exegesis, but there's a strong undercurrent of biblical anthropology here, I think, and I suspect mm-hmm. you might have another book in you about this. <laughs> the general theme is uh, don't, don't underestimate people, that is, the potential of people when they're redeemed by God and, and put into God's kingdom. Uh, it reminds me of the place in the New Testament where it calls Christians a holy priesthood. Mm-hmm. The Reformation theme of the priesthood of believers. And of course, Jesus is the eternal high priest. But what does a priest do? The priest mediates between God and humankind. I mean, that's it's a high thing. Yeah. That's an amazing calling. I mean, how can a bunch of sinners like us manage to pull off something like that? I completely agree. And you know, one of the threads that runs through the book is that Jesus is doing what he's doing, and he is empowering his disciples to do what he does as well, whether it's feeding people or healing people or exercising demons or preaching. These major markers of Jesus' action are things that he wraps other people up into. So and this is one of the, I think, one of the huge payoffs of recognizing that Jesus does what he does as an idealized human figure is to say, this is showing us not just what Jesus can do because he's God. Because once you've said that, you've immediately cut off the possibility that what Jesus does or says has any ramifications for us because we're not God. And so instead, you say, okay, he does this as this idealized human, and he gathers these people for the purpose of doing the exact same things that he does. And even the single most unrepeatable action of Jesus, i.e. dying on the cross, is not just something he does, but something that he summons all of his disciples to do. If you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus can do it not just because he's God and he knows he's going to raise himself from the dead. Maybe John is like that. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's this act of deep faith where Jesus has to entrust himself into the hands of God and believe that God is going to give him new life on the other side. I think all this is a magnificent way of confronting us with the fact that if this is what our Messiah is like, this is the kind of people that we should be. We keep bringing up Dr. Kirk, the gospel according to John. I have to throw this in there. We know the favorite five or six proof texts that, you know, Jesus is God in the gospel of John. But in the middle of the book, there's some undisputed themes there. Jesus says that he's gotten his message from God. One point says that it's the father in him who's doing the works. And at one point he says that the disciples will do even greater works. Mm. And uh, this just fits right in with what you're saying. 
he's exalted indeed, and he's doing these amazing things. But then, you know, you do see uh, not only the apostles in the New Testament, but sometimes later Christians doing some of those things. Yes. Yeah, I don't get into Acts a whole lot, although I do in my chapter on intertextuality. But one of the most important things that happens in the book of Acts is a series of reiterations of Jesus' ministry in the ministry of the apostles. Mm -hmm. The point seems to be that this is not the story of the Acts of the Apostles, this is the story of the continuing Acts of Jesus, because Jesus is acting in them and through them, and they are, in fact, recapitulating all of these aspects of Jesus' ministry. You know, I just said the word recapitulation, and so let me throw this in there um, since I, I use that word. You know, I know that this work makes traditional Christians nervous. Nobody likes to say that the way we talk about Jesus isn't the way that these Gospels talk about Jesus. But I think there is actually a quite a rich tradition of honoring the humanity of Jesus as being what humanity was always supposed to be. And Irenaeus is one that uses that language of recapitulation, and the point being that Jesus as a human is enacting what humanity was always supposed to be. Now, of course, he does that mixed with a divine Christology as well. But I think that there are some rich resources in the Christian tradition for saying the kinds of things about Jesus that I'm suggesting the Synoptic Gospels are saying. So this isn't just a New Testament professor trying to be cheeky and heretical. I think there's some important ways that it's drawing on the best of uh, what the Christian tradition has offered us, both in the Gospels and in some hints and intimations later on in the tradition. Jesus would embody in himself the story of humanity, that he would embody in himself that story, however, as one who is completely faithful to God. Jesus is the faithful human that uh, that humanity was always supposed to be. The second Adam. Yeah, exactly. Second Adam type Christology. There we go. It's in Paul, too. I think that Paul's Adam Christology is very similar to the Son of Man Christology of the Synoptics. I have a little article on that that you can find online if you're interested. Dr. Kirk, as I read the book, in many spots I found you making exegetical points about the synoptics that modern Unitarian Christians have made. I don't recall seeing any Unitarian sources in your notes. Were you influenced in your reading of the synoptics by any modern-era non-Trinitarian writers? You know, not that I know of. You know, I think I've actually only recently become aware of Unitarians as a scholarly force. One of the problems with doing research is, you know, you start chasing down the footnotes and a lot of the footnotes are going to keep you within certain conversations. So I'm actually not aware of modern Unitarian scholarship. I was really trying to focus on biblical scholarship uh, as my conversation partners. Of course, um, the early high Christology, um, you know, I think is deeply influenced by Trinitarian theology. But, you know, I was trying to stay focused on folks who are approaching using biblical, historical, critical sort of uh, approaches and that uh, I guess were more scholarly mainstream. So, no, I didn't I didn't notice that. And you know, maybe that's uh, all the better for them, because if I'm making the, the same argument without knowing that they've said it first, then maybe there's uh, an independent witness to their reading that <laughs> that they can take to the bank. Dr. Kirk, thanks for talking with us. Thank you again uh, so much for having me. I, I hope that this has been a, a good starting point for further conversation for, uh, for you and for your listeners. Again, the book is entitled A Man Attested by God, and it's by J.R. Daniel Kirk. 
Today's thinking music has been the track The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void. We got a new review in the U.S. iTunes store this week. It's from a user named Han Serific. Subject line says, from a biblical scholar's point of view, wonderful. It's a five-star review. This user writes, quote, I write as a Ph.D. student in theology and religion at Marquette University, whose concentration is Judaism and Christianity in antiquity. I have been listening to the Trinity's podcast for some time now, and although I'm training to be a biblical scholar, I find Dale's podcast to be nothing but stimulating and enriching, and only very rarely infuriating. Quite an accomplishment, really, given the topic matter of the podcast. Since I'm also interested in theology and the development of Christian theology within history, I find the topic matters and the guests that Dale has on the show to be usually very interesting and thought-provoking. I appreciate that he has guests on such as Larry Hurtado to talk about the development of early Christianity. Although he is a philosopher of religion, Dale has an admirable respect for history and the nitty-gritty details of early Christianity, the fathers, and exegesis of the New Testament. Even though I disagree with Dale on some important issues, I very much enjoy hearing his perspective as a philosopher. I would enjoy hearing Dale interact more with Catholic theologians who study and defend views regarding the role of tradition in scriptural hermeneutics and the development of church doctrine. Although most Protestants do not have a well-formulated theology of history and tradition, it is usually implicit, however, Catholics do. And it would be interesting to hear Dale interact with important texts such as Dei Verbum, or to hear him interview theologians who hold differing viewpoints regarding the role of tradition in the Christian theological interpretation of Scripture and the development of Christian doctrine. I have to admit, I have not listened to all the episodes, so I may have missed some material here. All that being said, I very highly recommend this podcast to anyone interested in Christian theology, the doctrine of God, early Christianity, apologetics, or philosophical theology. It's really well done. End quote. Hanserific, I really appreciate your kind words. And I agree that I need to have some more interaction and dialogue with Roman Catholic scholars. I think you're right also that most Protestants need to think a little bit more than they have about the relationship between Scripture and later mainstream Christian tradition. Myself, I tend to come out with a more Anabaptist-type view, but I realize that a great many Protestants are much more Catholic in this regard. Let me know if you have specific suggestions for interviewing a Roman Catholic thinker on this topic. Again, thank you very much. If you've listened to this far in the episode, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. going to devote next week's podcast, the one that's going to come out on October 31st, to listener questions. I haven't done this for a while. The last time I did a listener questions podcast was episode 90. But if you get me some this week, hopefully I can address yours as well, unless someone else has already asked a very similar question. So send those in. Some of my email addresses are easy to Google up, or you can contact me through Facebook or Twitter. I'm pretty bad about responding to emails when you ask me long questions there, but I've saved some up and I want to be able to address people more fully in next week's podcast. So thanks in advance, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org.
until next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.